Father, thanks for this moment to be silent, to just be and know that we are cared for you, that you love us, that you uh, desire a relationship with us, that you desire to speak to us. And we pray you do that this morning through the power of your spirit and the power of your word, uh, through Jesus' work, his life, death, and his resurrection on the cross, that you would meet us this morning, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to be transformed and soft, to be shaped by you. So we ask that you would do that, be with us this morning, we love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, good to see you guys this morning, glad you guys are here. Um, if you've been with us for any stretch of time, and uh, even if you've been in the rhythms class that Bethany just talked about, and let me just give a plug for that, because normally we do that every other month, but because of the holidays, we won't have that offered again until the month of February. So if you've been coming a little bit and you're new and you want to get connected to people um, and understand, again, really why we do what we do, that's a, a great spot for you to jump into that class in a couple of weeks. But if you've been to that rhythms class, you understand why we do what we do on a Sunday morning, and, uh, and usually we will preach through the Word of God for the next 30, 35 minutes, and then we'll sing again, we'll take communion, we'll have some response time. Um, but imagine this happened. Last night, I'm preparing for what I'm going to talk about in 1 Kings chapter 3, and the Lord came to me in a dream. And he said, here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to teach the text. Instead, use that time, use the rest of the 45 minutes after we're done singing. We're all going to stop, and we're going to pray. That's all we're going to do is we're going to pray. Don't worry, we're not going to do that. But if that happened, if the Lord was like, here's what I want you to do. We're going to stop. We're not going to teach. We're just going to pray. And what I want you to do is I want everybody to ask God something. What would you want from God if you could have anything you wanted? And we just sat for 45 minutes and we prayed. And it was guaranteed that when we finished praying and we walked out of those doors in 45 minutes, God was going to grant what you asked him. What would you ask for? Like, what would you ask God for right now? This is the scene that we're going to see in some level with Solomon today in 1 Kings chapter 3. If you've been with us, we've been walking through a series called We Want a King. We've been in it for 15 weeks. We've got five more weeks until we start Advent, the four weeks before Christmas. And we've looked at a man named Saul, a man named David, and now a man named Solomon, the first three kings of Israel's nation and the rise of their power and the fall of their power. We spent five weeks on Saul, ten weeks on David. We're going to spend five weeks with Solomon starting this morning. And really, we started in 1 Samuel chapter 8, and the scene is like this. If you're joining us for the first time, God's people, his covenant people, who he's rescued out of Egypt, out of slavery, he's provided for them, he's taken care of them, he's been their God, they start looking to the right and to the left at their neighbors, and they go, well, they have a king that they can see. We're tired of worshiping. We're tired of following a God we can't see. Man, this is hard. It's not easy. We want a king like the other nations around us that will fight for us, that will provide for us. That's what we want. And so God's people, even though he's provided for them, he's brought them into a new land. They say, no, we're tired of following you. We want to follow something more tangible like our neighbors. So Samuel the prophet goes to God with this message, and God says, like, that's not going to be good for them. Like, warn them, tell them, if they follow an earthly king, that king is going to take and take and take and take, and I'm meant to be their king. 
Samuel goes back to God's people and delivers the message and says, hey, this is, this is not what you want to do. And God's people just ignore it. They go, no, 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 no. We're not going to listen to that warning from God. We're going to do what we think is best. And what we think is best is give us a king. So God in his love and his mercy is a perfect and holy father and loving father says, okay, I'm going to give you what you ask for to show you it's not what you need. And he does. And he gives him a man named Saul. And if you remember Saul, man, Saul's tall, he's good looking, he's rich. Man, he looks from the outside like the perfect king. And Israel, God's people are like, okay, we got it. This is going to be amazing. And actually Saul Saul starts really well. If you remember the story, he starts in the power of God's spirit. And he, he defends God's people and he gives credit to God in one chapter. But in the midst of it, we see Saul's character is flawed. Even though he looks good on the outside, man, on the inside, he's insecure. He's prideful, and it leads to his downfall. He's not really repentant when he does something wrong. He kind of tells you what you want to hear, but underneath the surface, he's not really feeling sad and wrong. And so God appoints David as a young shepherd in the field. We saw that in 1 Samuel chapter 16. He anoints David and he says, you're going to be the future king. Saul is still reigning, but you're eventually going to be the king. And we see David do unbelievable things in the power of God's spirit. He eventually takes hold of the kingdom when Saul dies. It's the end of 1 Samuel and the beginning of 2 Samuel, that book. And as David starts to take power and starts to take rise, we start to see these cracks in his character. He starts to objectify women. He starts to live outside of the law, the Deuteronomy 17 law of what a king ought to do. He starts marrying foreign wives, and God says, don't do that. That's not going to be good for you. And it eventually leads to his downfall, his pretty tragic downfall in 1 Samuel chapter 11 with Bathsheba. He takes another man's wife. He sexually assaults her. He tries to cover it up, ends up killing her husband. It's a mess. It's a mess. God's like, I told you. (laughs) Like, I need to be your king. If you're going to put a human in charge, it's not going to go well for you, even somebody like David. But David comes back to God. He gets clean by going, okay, I know what gets me clean. It's sacrifice. It's sacrifice. God has to clean me. And we see the difference between Saul and David in that. His heart is repentant, David is. He wants to be made right, and he's made right again because of the sacrifice and what God provides for him. Even in the midst of that, there's ripple effects of his sin, right? We saw that in chapters 13 and on. And I mean, it's a mess. His family is an absolute mess. His son overthrows him. He goes out and he goes in exile again. He eventually comes back in to power. And we saw at the end of 2 Samuel chapter 24, the last chapter that we studied last week, man, his growth is working, but man, he's still a human and he still makes mistakes and he still comes back to the altar to ask for God's forgiveness. So that's where we're picking up in the story if you're new. So 1 Kings chapter 3, if you have a Bible, open it up. There's some Bibles uh, in the seats in front of you. If you need that, you can follow along on the screen. Um, We ended last week in 2 Samuel chapter 24, last chapter of 2 Samuel. We're jumping over uh, chapters 1 and 2 to get to chapter 3. So what's happened in 1 and 2, just to get you caught up to speed with the story, the narrative, is David is on his deathbed. He's about to die. And big surprise, there's a wrestle for power. (laughs) Who's going to be the next king? We're not sure. One of David's sons is like, it's going to be me. And Bathsheba comes to David and says, actually, you promised Solomon the throne. So David goes, you're right. So he goes and he anoints Solomon. Solomon becomes king. In the beginning of 1 Kings chapter 2, David says, here's how you do it, Solomon. You observe what the Lord God requires of you. And you will go well. It will prosper with you. And he says, like, man, follow God's law. 
But then we see him at the end of the chapter going, oh, by the way, these guys are after your power. You need to kill them, which is totally incongruent. But Solomon doing his best going, okay, I guess this is what it looks like to lead. I'm now the king. And he actually takes those other guys out. The general Joab that we've been talking about, Shimei, that we've been talking about, they end up dying at the hand of Solomon and him trying to consolidate and secure his power. So that's where we're picking up the story. First Kings chapter 3. We're going to walk through the chapter together and we're going to look at this idea of um, Solomon's best attempt at leading through what we would call worldly wisdom until he gets wisdom from God. So here is 1 Kings chapter 3 starting in verse 1. It says this. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. And the people were sacrificing at the high places. However, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statues of David, his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. Let's stop here for a minute. The first thing that we see in Solomon's journey towards leadership as he takes power is this idea of worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom. If you're taking notes, this is what Solomon is doing. He's looking around and he's going, okay, this seems to make sense. This seems to be the best way forward as I'm leading. He's not trusting God yet, even though he's trying to walk with God. Verse 3 tells us that. It seems like he has a heart posture towards God and going like, okay, I'm going to try and walk with God. I'm going to try to do what my father David said to do. But here's where he starts going sideways with worldly wisdom. We saw, or I just mentioned in 2 Kings, the first thing he does is he tries to secure his power. He goes and he kills these guys. They're a threat to him. That is not what God would want. And he's trying to secure his power because these guys are a threat to your control. And he goes, okay, here's what worldly wisdom does is I'm going to secure my power. I'm going to secure my control. And again, this idea of worldly wisdom or this worldly wisdom mindset most of the people in your circle are going to go, well, that totally makes sense. You should try to secure your power. You should try to secure your control so that nobody takes it from you. And so for us, that can look like hopefully not killing people. But uh, in your work, maybe there's somebody that um, you're kind of neck and neck with for the promotion. And instead of trusting God's wisdom, you rely on worldly wisdom. And you go, I need to secure my power. I need to secure my control. And so you start talking about your boss, about this other coworker, And you kind of go like, well, I don't know. I mean, they're okay, but they're eh, not really doing the best work. Or you start gossiping. You start making yourself look better all in the efforts to secure your own power, to secure your own seat. Because, man, it can get taken away from you at any moment. And so we start doing and saying things that are not in God's economy because we're following the ways of the world when it comes to wisdom. The second thing we see Solomon doing in this kind of worldly wisdom mindset is he not only secures his power and his control, but he starts to establish his power and control. So he's secured it. He's eliminated the threats that might take his throne, and now we need to build on top of it. We need to establish and expand our power. We need to expand our control. How do we see that? Verse 1 says, Solomon made a marriage alliance with the Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her to the city of David. Now, if you've been paying attention at all uh, with this series, 
you know we talked about in Deuteronomy 17, when God lays out in the law, here's what you need to do, here's what you don't need to do if you are a king. The first thing he says, don't take horses and chariots, don't build your empire because you don't want to go back to Egypt. The second thing he says is don't take foreign wives because they're going to draw you away from worshiping me. So Solomon right here, even though this is a strategic move from the world standpoint, because what he's done is he's created an alliance with Pharaoh, and it's like, oh, the king of Israel is just as powerful as Pharaoh. Like, his kingdom is expanding. He's building his brand. It makes sense. Like, this is the right move for Solomon to do. And maybe his advisors have said, hey, this makes sense for you. But it's in direct opposition of what God's law says. But it's like, oh, this is okay. This, this seems to make sense. So he's trying to secure his power. He's trying to establish his power. And we don't do that as well. Like even if we eliminate threats in our workplace or other places as we're trying to secure our power, don't we try to establish our power too? We try to build off it. Maybe we say something or we do something that we might not normally do. Like even in a relationship, it's like, well, I know they're going to church, so I'm, I'm going to go to church because maybe I'll look or feel a certain way and I'll, I'll expand my power and maybe we'll get into a relationship. It could go both way, a guy or a girl, or maybe I'm going to look this way or act this way. That's not really me, but it's actually going to expand my control. It's going to expand my power. This is worldly wisdom that Solomon is following. And then the third thing we see in this worldly wisdom mindset, he's securing his power, he's establishing his power, and then we see this kind of popular or convenient power that Solomon is executing here. And we see that as he goes to make sacrifices, uh, verses 3 and 4 tell us about that, that he sacrificed on the high places. Now, most commentators would go like the high places are kind of the, the, the local temples or the local places where foreign gods are there and they're going like, well, we don't have like a house of the Lord. We don't, like, so we're going to go to these other places. And at least we're sacrificing to Yahweh. At least we're sacrificing to the Lord. But it's more popular. It's more convenient. It seems to make sense to everybody. And Solomon's following this worldly mindset of going like this. Yeah, this makes sense, even though this is not what God wants him to do. How easy is it for us to do that as well? Go, man, what is everybody else doing? What's convenient for everybody else? You know, just go to church once a month or just do this. This is kind of what everybody does. This is what the culture does. This is no problem. And you go, yeah, well, at least I'm going to church once a month. Like, not like my neighbor who's not going at all. And we start to move into this mindset of what's popular or what seems to be convenient. And I'll just slide into that. And it seems like a good fit for me. So this is what Solomon's doing in the first part of his reign. He's trying to secure his power through worldly wisdom. He's trying to establish his power, build off his power in worldly wisdom. And then he's trying to utilize this idea of what's popular, what's convenient in the midst of his power and his wisdom. And anytime we walk in that worldly wisdom mindset, although your peers, the people around you, maybe even some Christians will go, oh, yeah, that totally makes sense. You should totally do that. And then you know in your heart, it's going like, well, I don't think God wants me to do that. But it's convenient, it's easy, it lets me hold my control. We do this all the time. And if we continue to do it, especially if we're leading, man, we're going to run into a dead end. Because this version of wisdom, it's a fraud. It might help us a little bit, but ultimately it's not going to align us with the way God wants us to live and the way God wants us to lead. So let's continue to see what happens in the story. Verse 5, as Solomon again is 
uh, operating in this worldly wisdom as he begins to lead. Verse 5 says, At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, Ask what I shall give to you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and uprightness and his heart towards you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king a place of David, my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I might discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? The second thing we see, even in the midst of Solomon's worldly wisdom and the way he begins to lead, is we see the Lord initiate. The Lord initiates. Look at verse 5. It says, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. I love this, that God doesn't wait for Solomon to clean up his act, to figure it out, to go, oh, actually, this isn't helpful, this doesn't work. No, God pursues Solomon. And the God of the Bible, do you know, he pursues you. <laughs> he chases you. He comes after you. He wants you to walk in his ways, to learn the way it means to love him and love others. He pursues you. We see God pursuing Solomon in this moment, giving him this dream. And God asks him, what do you want, Solomon? I'll, gi I'll give you whatever you want. What do you want? And Solomon says, man, I, I need an understanding mind. I need a discerning heart. And Solomon realizes as a leader, I mean, he can't figure it out. Like this worldly wisdom, like it, it's not working. Like eventually I know there's a problem with this. Like I'm, I'm trying to do my best as a leader and I'm trying to make these decisions, but ultimately, God, I need something outside of myself to help me lead and specifically to help me understand what's right or wrong. Like I don't know if you've ever led anybody, and sometimes we think a leader is just a CEO or the manager of a company, but a leader is anyone that has followers, right? So even if you're a parent, even if you're a mom of young kids, you are a leader because those kids are following you. There's people that are following you. They're watching you. And in the midst of them watching you, in the midst of you being a leader, do you know what? It's kind of hard. I don't know if you realize that, especially as a parent. You get your, uh, your kids coming up and the sibling goes, well, this is what he did and this is what he did. And you go like, oh, well, well who's telling the truth? And sometimes it's hard to decide that. And Solomon is doing this on a massive scale because he sees the weight of his leadership. He sees how many people there are, and he's going, God, I, I don't know how to discern good from evil. I need help outside of myself. That's what I want you to give me. Give me wisdom. Give me a discerning mind. God answers that, and this is what he says in verse 10. He said, it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked this and you have not asked for yourself a long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but you have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor. So that no other king shall compare to you all of your days. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, 
As your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. The next thing we see in this story is how the Lord responds. Solomon's walking in this worldly wisdom. God initiates with him and says, what do you want me to do for you? And and Solomon says, give me wisdom to understand how to lead. And the Lord responds to him. I love verse 10. It says, it pleased the Lord that Solomon asked this. That phrase, it pleased the Lord, it's only a couple times in the whole Bible. And this is one of the times. Isn't that interesting? That God was pleased by Solomon's request. Why is God pleased from his request? And I think What Solomon is doing is he's understanding the full scope of what God is trying to do in this experiment called humanity and creation. Because if you back all the way up and you see God creates everything and he creates it good in Genesis 1 and 2. And then at the pinnacle of his creation, he creates Adam and Eve, these humans that are meant to do what? To walk alongside him, to steward his creation. He tells them in the cultural mandate at the end of Genesis 1 to to rule and reign, to have dominion over the creation, not over each other, but over the creation. They're meant to co-partner with God in this thing called life. God desires a special relationship with humans. And even in the midst of them leading, you can probably see the weight of Adam and Eve at some point, because if you know the story, only two chapters later in Genesis chapter 3, they disobey God. Right? They choose their way instead of God's way. It's just like 1 Samuel 8. They go, ah, well, I'm tired of following this because what God does is he goes, man, this is supposed to be a love relationship. We're supposed to love one another. Right? And anytime there's love, there's free will. And so he says, listen, I'm going to put this tree in the garden. I don't want you to eat of it. He gives them the opportunity to show that they love him. And you guys know the story in Genesis 3. They get tricked. They get tricked into believing their way is better. And how do they get tricked specifically in the midst of them leading and coming alongside God in this experiment of life? Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to what? Make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And so in the midst of this project that God has with humanity and creation, he says, man, I want you to co-author this thing with me. I want you to come alongside with me as I'm over you. You're going to be over the creation. And as they're over the creation, they're going, man, we need some wisdom to figure out how to lead this thing. And maybe this fruit, maybe this thing will give us wisdom. And they bite of it. They're looking for wisdom outside of what God tells them to do. And this is the direct opposite of what Solomon does. You catch this? He realizes, like, I can't get wisdom in other places. It does not work. And so, God, I need wisdom from you in the midst of me leading, in the midst of me continuing to lead your people. I think God's pleased with this because he goes, okay, you get it. You get it. You're not looking for wisdom outside of me. You're looking for wisdom where the source is found in me. And God is pleased with this. I also think he's pleased because Solomon is asking for wisdom to do what? To lead other people. It's not self-focused. It's outward-focused. He's saying, I need wisdom to learn how to lead other people, your people. And this pleases God. And this ought to be our heart posture as well as we're leading people, as we're trying to walk with Jesus to go like, God, I need wisdom outside of myself And in James chapter 1, verse 5, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, 
who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. And God is going like, I'll give you wisdom as you lead. And you try to figure out, man, I don't know what's right or what's wrong. I don't know about you, but I need wisdom for those areas. And often I go outside of God to get that wisdom. Give me a podcast, give me a book, give me a lecture, something. And those things aren't wrong, but often I go to those things before I go, okay, God. I I don't know. You need to give me wisdom. And God says, ask for wisdom. If you don't have it, ask for it, and I will freely give it. But often we don't want to ask for it. Why don't we want to ask for wisdom from God who offers it to us? I think some of the reason we don't want to ask for it is because we have pride. We go, no, 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 I'll figure it out. Just give give me a week. I'll I'll figure out what this is. Maybe we don't ask for wisdom because we know it's going to be others-focused and that self-focused. We go, man, if I really get God's wisdom, I'm actually going to have to live this thing out. Like, I'm going to have to die to myself and love people. I'm not sure if I want that. God gives us wisdom as we ask for it. He's that type of God that gives us what we need. He's not a God that says, here's what you have to do. Here's all the rules, and you just got to figure it out on your own. No, this is a God that loves us and empowers us. and says, hey, I want to help you lead in this thing, but you have to depend on me. You have to, in humility, come to me in prayer, asking for it. And oftentimes we don't do that. Solomon does, and it pleases the Lord in the midst of his journey. So in the midst of God giving Solomon wisdom, let's see how this story plays out in the rest of the chapter. How does the wisdom manifest itself? Not this worldly wisdom, but godly wisdom. What actually happens? Let's pick it up in verse 15. It says, And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. But then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings, and he made a feast for all of his servants. Stop there. The first thing we see This wisdom, this godly wisdom manifesting itself is in verse 15. Solomon receives this wisdom from the Lord, and what does he do? He goes and he worships at the right place, in the right way. There's something about godly wisdom that ties obedience and worship together. When you ask God for wisdom and he gives you wisdom, there's an obedience tied to it and there's a a level of worship tied to it that is just an overflow. He doesn't worship in the high places anymore. No, he comes all the way back seven miles to Jerusalem and he says, I'm gonna worship here where God's presence is. And he worships. What's the second thing we see wisdom doing as we pick up the story in verse 16? This is one of the most um, probably well-known stories in all of the Bible. Verse 16. It says, then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. And the one woman said, O Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day, after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth, and we were alone. There was no one else in the house. Only we two were in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. And she arose at midnight. And took the son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. And when I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had born. But the other woman said, no, the living child is mine. The dead child is yours. The first said, no, the dead child is yours and the living child is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. Verse 23, then the king said, 
The one says, this is my son that is alive and your son is dead. And the other says, no, but your son is dead and my son is the living one. And the king said, bring me a sword. So the sword was brought before the king and the king said, divide the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, oh my Lord, give her the living child and by no means put him to death. But the other said, he shall neither be mine nor yours. Divide him. Verse 27, then the king answered and said, give the living child to the first woman and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. And all Israel, of all the judgment that the king had rendered, they stood in awe of the king because they had perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. So here's the second thing in the midst of the story that the Bible paints of Solomon's rise as he, as he does right things, right? Just like all the first, Saul does a right thing, David does a right thing, Solomon does a right thing, and then they come crashing down, right? As they trust the Lord in humility and dependence and ask for wisdom and God grants wisdom for him, he goes and he offers at the right place so there's an obedience and a worship tied to it. And what's the next thing that we see this godly wisdom spill out onto? It's this act with these two women. That come to him. And man, I, I love the details of this story. Verse 16. I love that godly wisdom is not only for the elite. It's not only for the people that have all the money. It's not only for the high class. Who is this wisdom for? Two prostitutes get brought before the king. Now the king could say, I'm not going to listen to those. Like, like in that culture, they were women, which did not have a high view in that culture. They were prostitutes. They would have been outcast. Like the king could have gone like, I'm not going to deal with this filth. Bring me something that matters. But the king welcomes the lowly. He welcomes the marginalized. This is the God of the Bible. He welcomes the lowly and the marginalized. He actually pursues justice for them. So these two women come. You heard the story. And one of them is clearly not telling the truth. In the midst of this godly wisdom and what it produces, it produces a couple things. The first thing it produces is godly wisdom exposes the heart. Godly wisdom exposes the heart. Solomon doesn't know who's lying and who's telling the truth. And so he puts in play a, a scenario to expose the heart of what's really going on with these women. He says, bring me a sword. We're going to cut the baby in half. And the one woman who, it is her baby, she goes, no. Like ex exposes her heart like, no, I want my son to live. Even though it's going to be an injustice for me, I care more about my son's life than I do my injustice. And can you imagine her in that moment, walking in front of the king, being slandered, being told, man, this is what this woman is saying. This is not her baby. This is my baby. And she doesn't defend herself in that moment. She goes, no, let the baby live. And she's got to be thinking in her mind, like, I'm never going to see my kid again. I might never, what if this is a son? Like, it is a son. Like, I'm, I'm not going to have financial security and stability because in that culture, that's how it worked. She gives all of that up, getting slandered in the midst of it to go, no. This is what's right. And it exposes her heart. That's what godly wisdom does. And because godly wisdom exposes the motives or the heart with people that we're trying to lead, then the second thing that godly wisdom does is it brings justice. In the midst of her heart being exposed, now Solomon knows, okay, you were lying and you were telling the truth, and I'm going to give justice where justice is due. And the woman gets her child back. 
man, for some of us, we're like this woman, man. We've had something stolen from us. We've maybe been betrayed in some way. And then that betrayer is saying all these things about you, <laughs> claiming one thing about you that is not true. And some of us still haven't experienced that justice. We might not experience it in this lifetime. But if we trust the God of the Bible, ultimately, you know what? There will be justice. At the end of the day, this God, this Jesus that works for us on the cross, he's going to come back and he's going to make all things right. He's going to make all things new. So you might be in a scenario right now where you're getting talked about, you're getting slandered, and you're going, God, where is the justice? I don't understand this. But keep trusting him. Because godly wisdom, the heart will be exposed, and ultimately there will be justice. Even if it's not in this life, it will be in the next. That's the hope for the Christian. That we don't follow this worldly wisdom that would go, like, you're not getting your justice. Like, you need to go sideways, and you need to say this about this person. Like, you waited long enough to trust God. You need to start defending yourself. No! That's not godly wisdom. That's worldly wisdom. And that's what we get to see in Solomon. That's what we get to see in these women. Again, look at the picture that this points to, this story, that God gives us in Solomon's reign here. Right? The heart of the mother is exposed in her action to, to lose her child, which is an injustice to her. She does not deserve it. The son doesn't deserve it. She doesn't deserve it. But she's doing it for the overall good to save the child's life. And in the Bible, the father... The father is exposed in his action to lose his child, an injustice he doesn't deserve, an injustice the son doesn't deserve, so that what? We can have life in the son of Jesus. That's what godly wisdom is. And the best way to describe godly wisdom for us as Christians is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 18. This is what he says. He says, for the word of the cross is folly, that's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs and Greeks demand wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Do you know if you follow this way of the world, this wisdom of the world, it's going to make sense to people around you. They're going to kind of pat you on the back. That makes sense. You should do that. Secure your power. Establish your power. Do what's convenient. But if you're following Jesus and you go, no, in humility, I'm going to pray. I'm going to listen. I'm going to trust. And your heart gets exposed. Do you know what the world is going to say? You're foolish. Why would you let that person do that to you? That makes no sense. And you go, no, 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 no. I'm trusting the Lord. I'm sacrificing my name, my reputation for what God says is true, and I'm trying to love this person well. That's foolishness to the world. 
cross doesn't make any sense to the world. Why would you give your money to an organization called the church? Why would you give your life to that? You just got a college degree. Now you're going into ministry. Like that doesn't make any sense to the world. It's backwards. Do you know what? The kingdom is backwards. It's upside down. Because to love somebody that hates you, that's what Jesus calls us to. And that's what's backwards. That's what's upside down. And that is the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of men. That's what we're called to do. In the midst of our jobs, in the midst of our families, in the midst of our lives, to lay our lives down, to love other people. It won't make sense to folks, especially non-Christians. It won't make any sense to them. And then you go, okay, I think I'm in the right place. As I trust God, as I follow God, as I die to myself so that others can live, that's the wisdom of God because that's what Jesus did for you. And that's what he did for me. And that's what he calls us to, is we're called to be Christians, to love other people well. If you're confused about some of the reactions of some of your decisions as you walk with Jesus, good. You're in the right spot. Let's pray. Father, would you give us discerning hearts and discerning minds to love people well? That often doesn't make sense to the world. Spirit, would you convict us of ways that we try to secure our own power? We try to establish and build off of our own power, our own control. Father, would you convict us of ways that we go after things that are convenient and popular for power? And would you help us see what is true? Would you expose our hearts personally? Would you bring justice? Would you help expose the hearts of those that we lead so we know what is right and what is wrong? God, would you continue to remind us that at the cross is where we find true wisdom. We ask that you do it. We pray in your name. Amen.